Welcome to the Mormon program, where we get more out of our faith because we know it's not about what we seek, but how we seek it. Let's now go over some of the teachings of the Dhammapada, the Buddhist holy book. Hatred does not cease by hatred. We're liberated of hatred by love. We're liberated of greed by generosity. We cease to suffer even as we suffer by learning passivity to pain. We're wealthy with heaven's riches when we claim nothing as our own. A man does not belong to himself. How much less does a man's house and family and friends and all manner of finery belong to him? Diligent people are awake among sleepers and earnest among the thoughtless. Only the resolute will find their way to enlightenment. Those who pursue nirvana will never die, whereas those who are thoughtless and asleep live as though they are already dead. Without proper knowledge, we become inert objects, useless as logs. Knowledge is liberation. Knowledge is enlightenment. We must attack the devils with knowledge, move about alone, overcome the impulses of the body, become an island unto ourselves, and live in the chambers of our own heart. The wise do not falter when blamed. The wise do not falter when praised. The fool who knows his foolishness is wise. One road leads to wealth, another road to nirvana. The holy beggar, the renunciant, the ascetic, these are the bhikshu. The bhikshu knows which road to take. He strives for separation from the world. The Mara, meaning the tempters or the devils, will attempt to entangle you in the bonds of hatred. There is no shark like hatred. There is no snare like ignorance. There is no fire like passion. There is no disease like hunger. There is no torrent like greed. Venerable people throw off the shackles and the fetters of their attachments to the world. They allow their thoughts to leave the well-trodden path and depart like a homeless drifter. The thoughts of the wise float above the world like the birds of the air. The venerable grind their appetites to a halt and become passionless. They look not for pleasure, and they fear not pain. It's better to conquer yourself than to conquer the world. A man who has vanquished himself becomes invincible. On the other hand, there is no help for those who cannot overcome their desires. No demonstration of sackcloth and ashes can redeem the one beholden to fleshly desires and worldly attachments. In the same way that fletchers shape arrows and carpenters bend lengths of wood, wise men build upon their character and work diligently to fashion themselves. Don't be a friend of the world. Don't live a thoughtless life sighing after the past. Fools are dazzled by the world. The wise are weary of it and eventually find their way out of it by their diligence. The wise find the path of the pathless and the track of the trackless. They retire from the world, die as to the world, and are reborn, enlightened, and awakened. Victory and defeat mean nothing. Pleasure and pain are only maya, illusion. Love nothing and hate nothing. Seek not for comfort and avoid not discomfort. The body and its impulses are as insubstantial as a glittering mirage. No man escapes blame in this world. If silent, they'll call you quiet. If garrulous, you'll be accused. Pass through the world and rise above all the good and the evil. 
weigh both sides of all things and have pity on all living creatures, and you will attain a release no worldling will ever know. Of all the ways the world will sully you, the filthiest of all the taints is ignorance. Take great heed to gain the wisdom that casts out ignorance. A thousand senseless words are only noise, but one word of truth will quiet the room. A man is not wise only because his hair is gray. He who has made poor use of his time has grown old in vain. He who has walked the double path, who knows both sides of all things, and who understands loss as well as gain, is rich with wisdom. This wisdom is developed by zeal. If something is to be done, attack it vigorously. The disciples of Buddha are always awake. Know when to be active and when to be passive. Don't overly identify yourself by titles, offices, names, and forms. Don't despise your small lot when you receive little. A man with an empty house will be tranquil. A man with an empty boat will move swiftly on the river. Keep noble friends or remain alone. Rouse yourself to yourself, for the self is the lord of the self. The self is the refuge of the self. You alone know how to apply the doctrine of the Buddha to your life. Move past this shore and then move past that shore. Few among men reach the other shore. Most only run up and down one shore. Travel about as though you have no home. Be as passive to hell as to heaven. Forbid not and be tolerant. He who is subdued, restrained, ascetic, and chaste has ceased to find fault with others and has renounced the world like a bhikshu, will unlock all of heaven's secrets. Don't be deceived that you gather goodness little by little. With patience we become righteous over time, like the slow drip of water droplets filling a large pot. Let's go over some of the history of Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama, the child who would later become the Buddha, was born in 563 BC in the Lumbini province of Nepal. Gautama was a prince, and his mother, the queen of a small kingdom in India, had a dream that a beautiful lotus flower entered through her stomach and nestled into her womb. When the queen asked a wise man what the dream meant, he responded that she would have a very important child, and he would become either a holy man or a great warrior. The queen died seven days after giving birth to the boy, and so he was raised by his father, the king, who, remembering his wife's dream, wanted to protect the child from becoming a holy man. The king wanted the boy to become a warrior and then perhaps even some kind of leader like the emperor of India. So he shut the boy up in the palace for as long as he possibly could, almost three decades, carefully curating what the boy knew and understood so as to protect him from wisdom so he would not become a holy man. The king married off the young prince at 16 years old, hoping that romance would keep him occupied so he wouldn't become curious about the world and begin exploring outside the walls of the palace. And the plan worked for a while. But at 29 years old, Gautama finally became so curious that he snuck out of the palace and had four shocking encounters with the reality of life on the outside. He saw a man who was very sick, a man who was very old, a corpse, and finally a holy man. He asked his handlers, what is this sickness I observed? They answered, all people experience sickness eventually. He asked, that emaciated man with the wrinkles and the gray hair, what happened to him? They responded, all people age and arrive at the doors of death. They then explained suffering, death, 
and the corpse they had seen outside the palace. Gautama began to realize that he had been sheltered and that the awful reality was that life was transient, painful, and cruel. What about the holy man? he asked. His attendants responded, some people escape suffering by living a higher life. Gautama resolved within himself that he would leave the palace and become one of these strong people who overcome the world, one of the holy men. His wife at this time had just given birth to a son, but Gautama, already having made his decision, named the child Rahula, meaning ball and chain or fetter, because he knew that if he stayed in the palace and lived a privileged life with the perfect wife and the perfect child and wanting nothing, he would never encounter and thus overcome suffering and pain. He left his family, knowing that to gain anything, he must first lose everything. He wandered south toward the Ganges River and entered into voluntary poverty. Once a wealthy prince, Gautama was now a beggar. He cut his long hair down to the scalp, donned simple yellow robes, and survived on the charity of strangers. He became an ascetic eating simply and infrequently, avowed to celibacy and poverty with no roof overhead, at the mercy of the elements. He encountered others who had renounced the world, and together they formed a community of spiritual seekers. Raised Hindu, most of these people believed in the cycle of death and rebirth called samsara. They also believed if they lived a holy life of self-denial, they could achieve moksha, or deliverance from the continuous hell of death and rebirth. The Mara, meaning the devils, tempted Gautama. The Mara told him if he would go back to the palace, they would ensure that he'd become the emperor. But he refused. He knew if he could find that elusive path to enlightenment, he could lift himself out of the ceaseless iterations of mortal life called the samsara, and he could enter the heavenly rest of nirvana. He knew enlightenment could never come from the typical life of constant self-gratification, forever hungering after the many desires of the flesh and foolishly thinking that this next bite will finally fill you or this next drink will ultimately satisfy. He tried the opposite of self-gratification. He worked his way into a state of complete self-denial. He found that the more he deprived himself and the more he pondered and meditated, the more wisdom he won. However, Gautama discovered that even asceticism, good as it was, at unlocking the mysteries of life to his mind, could be taken too far. Starving nearly to death voluntarily as a prolonged holy fast, he realized he needed to find the elusive middle way, the way that was like a boat on a river. First, you start on the one shore, then you cross to the other shore, and ultimately you move your boat into the middle of the river where you'll be taken by the momentum of the water all the way down river to the place of enlightenment. Saying 4.14 of the Dhammapada says, only one who has reached the other shore can escape the vanity of the world. The holy book, the Dhammapada, is a collection of sayings reported to be straight from the mouth of this same Siddhartha Gautama who later achieved enlightenment and became the Buddha. In saying 369 of the Dhammapada, we read, it's only when you empty your boat that you can make your way speedily downriver. An empty boat means you shed your attachments to every appetite, the passion for food and for sleep and for sex and for money and for the praise of the world and for any of the comforts of life. Arriving at the middle way doesn't mean you row your boat from the first shore out to the middle of the river and you stop there. Buddhism is realistic. It recognizes that you have to engage with something before you can disengage. You have to attach to something before you can release. 
That's why they encourage familiarity with the first shore, familiarity with the other shore, and then arriving somewhere in between at a place they call the middle way. The first and second shores can look different in the lives of different people. In Gautama's case, the first shore was his luxurious palace life. Then the other shore for him was asceticism so extreme he became emaciated. Gautama himself said, My body was so thin that my limbs hung like vines. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the rafters of an old abandoned building. The gleam of my eyes became sunken in like water you find deep down in a well. My bald scalp withered like a gourd in all the elements, shriveled by the cold and the heat and the wind. A commentator on this phase of Buddha's life said, He sought to liberate himself of everything human within him. Everything that was coarse and vulgar, every bit of anger, every bit of desire. Eliminating appetites leads to a transcendental state, and the Buddha achieved it. He scarcely ate or drank. He would meditate on one foot. He was sleeping on beds of nails. He desired renunciation. His goal was to become passive to joy and passive to pain, and he set out to die to all things worldly and fleshly. He felt that dying to one's life as it was was essential to being reborn a god. Eventually, the Buddha found his middle way by walking what the Dhammapada calls the double path or the two shores. He attached to and then was liberated from the first shore of opulence and luxury. He then attached to and released from the second shore of extreme self-denial. Buddha is depicted in art as fat and laughing, but the historical Buddha was a disciplined ascetic. He was never chubby. The depictions of the laughing Buddha so popular in the West actually refer to a different Buddha than Siddhartha Gautama. Because Buddhists believe in many gods, or in other words, many Buddhas, there was a Buddha who lived 1600 years after Gautama Buddha, who was generous and playful, and his name was Buddhai, because that's not confusing. Depictions of the historical Buddha are much more reverent and subdued, with all the telling features we recognize from the folk tales, like the snail hat, the bindi on his forehead, and the long earlobes. The middle way in Buddhism does not include any formal creed or set of hard and fast rules one must follow by fiat. One could look within to hear the voice of one's own conscience telling you when to eat and when to offer a fast, when to be silent and when to speak, when to laugh and when to cry. Buddhism celebrates the self, saying 379 declares, rouse yourself to yourself for the self is the lord of the self. That's not to say that Buddhists give in to their whims, however, they are still answerable to the best within them. In many ways, Buddhists are even more self-controlled than many Westerners because they honor the various forms of asceticism as methods of tapping into the transcendental. They esteem what they call passionlessness. They say, be passive to pleasure and passive to pain. Act as though you're an observer in life, as though you're the object and not the subject, the onlooker and not the protagonist. Look on as though life were happening to you, as though you were not even in control, because realistically, you're not in control. Life is suffering, and the sooner you accept it, the sooner you rise above it. Shed attachments down to the very core of your identity, even down to your sense of self. The concept of leaving even self behind reminds me of the biblical passages that tell us we are not our own, but we are appendages on the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.23 and 1 Corinthians 6.20 when the Dhammapada asks whether a person can belong to himself and suggests that our things and our friends and our family members don't belong to us, that reminds me of Luke 14.26, which tells us to debase all that is dear to us, meaning, to borrow a Buddhist phrase, release or detach from those things. 
not physically, of course, unless the Lord specifically asks you to walk away from your family like Moses had to do in Exodus 18:2 to pursue his enormous calling from God, or like Buddha had to do when he was called upon to renounce the world. Most of us won't be called upon to physically leave our families behind, but the responsibility is ours to mentally disentangle ourselves from all the ephemera of the world. Families are eternal, but in mortal life, death rips us from our family members constantly. Regardless of how forever heavenly families are, we know that families, unfortunately, are not forever here. And I have to make peace with that. Instead of crossing my fingers and hoping I'm one of the lucky few whose nearest and dearest don't prematurely depart, if I haven't done the inner work of making peace with catastrophic possibilities, then my work awaits me. Could I give away all that I have, like Jesus asked the rich man to do in Matthew 19:21? It seems these questions are not rhetorical, they're actionable. Last year, I did some research on the Stoic school of thought founded by Zeno in the 3rd century BC. The Stoic philosophy is very similar to the Eastern notions of equanimity and the middle way. The Stoics tell us we ought to perform regular mental exercises to expand our ability to remain unattached to the illusions of the world. They call it premeditatio malorum, the premeditation of troubles that could descend upon us out of nowhere. This premeditation of troubles steals us against life's inevitable setbacks. Seneca would say unexpected blows of fortune fall heaviest and most painfully. Preemptive visualization sounds like borrowing trouble. It seems pessimistic, but the Stoics considered it an expression of optimism because it gave them power over their future. They could not control what misfortunes did in actuality befall them, but they could prepare for what Seneca called every eventuality. If you do the proper inner work daily, constantly, keeping death and hell forever before your eyes, it actually does produce optimism, unlikely though that may seem. There's a psychologist I follow online and he keeps in his home the most hellish, gruesome, but also hauntingly beautiful paintings and other works of art to provide contrast against his otherwise peaceful and picturesque modern surroundings. Premeditation of troubles does help us appreciate our present moment. Premeditatio Malorum reminds me of Noah Rochetta, the LDS author and podcaster. Noah Rochetta has kind of incorporated his religious influences into a synthesis he calls Secular Buddhism. And that's also the title of his podcast. He says he learned a phrase from his Buddhist friends called radical okayness. Radical okayness is that moment of relief you feel when you almost get into a car accident, or you maybe have a cancer scare, but the tests reveal everything is okay. Or I had a pregnant friend whose sonogram pictures scared the doctors, but after a few harrowing days of awaiting results, it turned out the baby was fine. That relief you feel when you realize everything is okay is what it means to be radically okay. It seems to me this is something like a repurposed premeditatio malorum. Rochetta says we can feel a wash with relief, like we feel after those narrow escapes of life, without the scrape with danger or death. We can remind ourselves, perhaps by making radical comparisons, that everything in this moment really is wonderfully and blissfully okay. Disciples of the middle way understand that we're only the temporary stewards of all that we think we own here. All that is yours is only on loan. Your body, your health, your spouse, your kids, your time on earth, your talents, your job. These are all things that can be taken in a snap because they were never yours to begin with. And yet we seek to attach so firmly to these things 
And the clearest indication that we've formed an unhealthy attachment is when we feel it's our right to control, to control our circumstances or our outcomes, to control how we feel, to control the behavior of our spouse or our kids. Saying 421 of the Dhammapada insists that a wise man calls nothing his own. If you haven't checked out the Faith Matters podcast yet, there's an LDS author named Gana Lynn Condi who discusses this topic on episode 81, and she calls this concept stewardship versus ownership. She says there are certain signs you can look for to clue you in that you're mentally switching from that healthy, detached place of stewardship into that unhealthy, clutching ownership headspace. She says control, identity, comparisons, hopelessness, and emotional exhaustion are indications that you're in an ownership place. She says our stewardships are like the parable of the talents. So often we think of God giving us a talent in the form of a spiritual gift, maybe some interpersonal ability we have to deeply connect to people or something. And then, yay, we get to turn that one talent into two, and then two into three, and so on. But Sister Condi says, what if most of the talents God gives us are in the form of limitations? What if he gives us the talent of divorce to see how we can magnify that stewardship and bear fruit despite that limitation? And then he gives the talent of disability, health crisis, financial ruin. And then what if despite all those stewardships we'd rather not be called to take charge of, we magnify and fructify all that we touch anyway? What if that's the more realistic reading of Matthew 25, 21? She says, when we approach the ugly stewardships with the same zeal as we approach the lovely stewardships, God gives us increase. That's the hallmark of a stewardship properly handled and a talent properly multiplied. There will always be expansion. There will always be increase. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chose the weak things of the world to confound the wise. He chose the powerless things to shame those who think they are powerful. Anyone can take a comfortable stewardship and magnify that, right? But who among us can take weakness and turn it into strength or ugliness and turn it into beauty? That's real stewardship. Ecclesiastes 3, 9-14 says, God hath given man trouble and travail, that the sons of men will be exercised in it. But what doth it profit one who worketh and laboreth? He finds satisfaction in his toil. He receives it as a gift from the Lord, for God makes everything beautiful in due time. Aristotle said courage is the virtue that makes all other virtues possible. It takes courage to do like the Stoics do, and envision difficulty. It takes courage to magnify ugly stewardships like Ganelin Condi, and courage to be radically okay, like Noah Rochetta. It takes courage, or what the Buddhists call zeal, to look with equal dispassion upon the terrible and the beautiful, the hellish and the heavenly. Saying 145 calls zealous action creative. The indication is that if you take the right actions in life, you will build your own morality, construct your own godliness, and ultimately fashion yourself into a god. Saying 41 indicates that those who do not take the proper actions are weak, inert, and ignorant. They're as useless as logs, says the text. It's a mistaken belief that Buddhism is a passive religion. Certainly the Buddhists do attain passivity to joys and pains, but that passivity paradoxically has to be meticulously constructed with inner action. People think of equanimity as though it's formless, lifeless, or bland. John Ronson says, we've created a world where the only way to survive is to be bland. Blandness is not equanimity. Keeping your head down, staying out of the way, that's not equanimity. Equanimity is more about holding heaven and hell in dynamic tension. It's about being all things at all times. 
Moderation doesn't mean you flounder around aimlessly or that you never touch down on the first shore or the second shore. It means after having touched down on both sides, you settle into the middle. It's about being so broad in scope that you're boundless. It's about being so experienced by way of premeditatio malorum and visualization and meditation and pondering and inner work that you become too familiar with all sides of all issues to put roots down over here on this shore or on that shore. You're too swift on the river to anchor down. You're everywhere and everything at once. The Dhammapada says with enough life experience, you'll become so enlightened that your knowledge will fill the immensity of space. The Buddhists, peaceful as they are, are not about the sort of equanimity that manifests as a stasis or a blandness. It's not about a moderation that comes from a place of never having handled or examined any of the issues. It's about the place at which you arrive after having handled and examined all sides of all questions of morality and virtue, and for that matter, all sides of temptation and evil, too. We can only detach from the world after having first attached. Detaching prematurely or failing to engage with the world properly is only ignorance. You've met people who are tolerant but ignorant, right? Who in response to questions of philosophy or religion will say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm okay with everyone else choosing to be religious. That's tolerance and that is admirable on some level. That's certainly better than a bias against all religion, let's say. But live and let live is not the same as empathizing by way of direct experience with all the different moral persuasions. Instead of idly waving people off with a removed tolerance, a person who has experienced by study all the different religions will have direct solidarity with any person of any religious persuasion. That is equanimity. The idea is that you fully engage, then you release. Explore the sensual world like Buddha, then explore asceticism and self-denial. Explore all sides of political and religious questions, engage with various philosophies, travel, see how people live, engage and then disengage, attach and then detach. Paradoxically, your ability to detach will depend on the extent to which you first explored and engaged. All of this is active, not passive. The Dhammapada calls proper action creative, in the sense that it's generative and productive. Morality isn't about neutrality or inaction, but about properly applied action. It's a bit like the LDS concept of agency. Agency improperly applied gives you over to someone else's agency, gives you over to worldly appetites, gives the devil's power over you, and makes you less an agent to yourself and more an object to be acted upon, or what the Dhammapada would call a useless log. Using agency wisely makes you the master of yourself, and then over time, proper use of your agency fashions you into a god. Equanimity is that place where you resist the pull of attraction, but you also resist the pull of aversion. You catch yourself before you're seduced by something. You catch yourself before you repudiate and reject something. Rudyard Kipling said we ought to be able to meet with triumph and disaster and treat both imposters just the same. It's true that everything is illusory. Everything is an imposter. Saying 170 of the Dhammapada calls this life a glittering mirage. Carl Jung, in his own way, discusses detachment. He says we rely too much on our outward social regalia in our search for acceptance and meaning. He says overly identifying with one's social positions and titles is an attractive prospect, which is why so many men are nothing more than the decorum accorded them by society. One would look for depth of character beneath the husk completely in vain, because in some cases people have done none of the inner work that would lead to any actual depth beneath the social persona. 
Jung says, unfortunately, we encourage each other in this obsessive emphasis on the outward by lavishing one another publicly according to our offices and titles, appealing cheaply to each other's egos instead of working to unearth the inward persons beneath the outer husks. That strikes me as terribly true. We make small talk instead of big talk. We glibly dispense the compliments and the judgments without taking the time to really get to know people deeply. The Dhammapada says fools are driven by the wind, faltering variously as they're blamed and then praised. A commentator on Buddha's life said, what we would call reality is usually precisely the sort of thing that isn't real. All that is permanent is real. All that is impermanent is not real. The appetites and desires and worries and fears competing for your attention are not real. The thought that you're a self-directing individual with any control over your outcomes is not real. Enlightenment isn't about entering a new state. It's about surrendering to a reality that's already there. True reality is accessible to you. It's an inner voice. It's that person within you who can't be seduced by pleasure and can't be destroyed by pain. Close quote. Siddhartha Gautama attained enlightenment. He sat under a fig tree, a tree later called the Bodhi tree, and Gautama resolved to sit there until enlightenment settled upon him once and for all. He was determined to attain moksha, release from the world, and enter the spiritual state of nirvana, a state where all desires and attachments are extinguished. Gautama saw a series of visions awakening him from the slumber of his ignorance, and he was suffused with enough knowledge to fill the universe. The high god Brahma descended to dissuade the Buddha from entering into the rest of heaven. He suggested instead that Buddha remain on the earth as a teacher. So, the Buddha became an itinerant preacher teaching all with ears to hear about the Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The fourth of the Noble Truths is that the Eightfold Path will teach you to overcome suffering and achieve enlightenment. The Eightfold Path is proper perception, proper tenacity and resolve, proper speech, correct action, taking on responsibility, making the right efforts, concentration, and mindfulness. Those are the eight areas of what you would call their dharma, or their doctrine. Buddhist principles and practices are catching on among Latter-day Saints. We've been told in DNC 88.118 to seek wisdom out of the best books. As I've studied the Dhammapada, I've found to my surprise many truths that mirror my own LDS beliefs. The Latter-day Saint author Michael Wilcox says God has many voices. He says religion for him just keeps getting bigger and bigger like a circle widening and widening until presumably it will fill the whole universe. That seems to be a common theme throughout the scriptures of the world. These people who receive visions from heaven see everything from the foundations of the world to the very end when the Lord comes again and their knowledge fills what DNC 8812 would call the immensity of space. And Wilcox discusses how his religious circle has worked like a compass, not the directional tool. But when you draw a circle using a compass, you have what Wilcox calls the planted foot. And then you have the moving foot. As we gain religious knowledge, our moving foot grows wider and wider, and our circle gets bigger and bigger, but nothing new we learn moves us away from our humble beginnings. Our planted foot never moves. We still have somewhere deep in the recesses of our testimonies past, our simple foundational primary testimony, and we have our seeking and challenging teenage testimony, and all the things we've learned from the start remain with us. And God speaks to people according to their language and culture and understanding, like it says in DNC 1.24. So when God has spoken to a people through the Dhammapada or through the Bhagavad Gita or the Tao Te Ching, and when we research that, that doesn't move our planted foot. 
that just accepts and folds into our current understanding the new notion that widens our circle. And I think people are cluing into this. They're accepting new influences without allowing that to dismantle any work they've already done on themselves. Adding something new doesn't take away something old. That's a zero-sum view. Thomas Worthlin McConkie, Noah Rashada, Michael Wilcox, Brittany Lowe Hartley, these are Latter-day Saints who have incorporated some Buddhist practices into the Mormonism they're already practicing. Noah Rashada says at the beginning of each of his podcast episodes, don't use Buddhism to be Buddhist. Use Buddhism to make yourself a better whatever you already are. If you haven't looked into Thomas Worthlin McConkie, you can tell by his name he has quite the Mormon pedigree. Not that that matters, but for trivia, his grandfather was Joseph B. Worthlin and his great uncle was Bruce R. McConkie. He's written books, he's created an online program, and like Rashetta, he kind of synthesized Mormonism and Buddhism. Michael Wilcox is another one to watch. He features in a lot of LDS programs and podcasts for his ideas, not just about Buddhism, but about pretty much all world religions. He's been featured on Faith Matters and All In, which are both LDS programs. Brittany Lowe Hartley co-hosts the Almost Awakened podcast, another LDS program with an Eastern bent. And I think it's no surprise that Latter-day Saints would find the peace of the Eastern traditions appealing because Americans generally are go, go, go. But Saints, we take it to new heights. I think we've got to be the busiest people in the whole world. And while it's obviously virtuous to be industrious, too much diligence can rob our peace and remove our ability to hear the spirit. And so what could be a better method of finding the middle way between the shore of industry and the shore of introspection than by integrating Western and Eastern influences like many of the saints are doing right now? It seems to me these are very exciting developments. I'll leave you with a few quotes. This is BYU's former Dean of Religious Education, Robert Millet. He says, Is it any wonder that some of the most notable religious traditions embrace the idea of past lives? Why should we flinch when we discover the doctrines of reincarnation, transmigration of souls, and rebirth? This is Socrates. As the soul is immortal, has been born often, and has seen all things here and in the underworld, there is nothing which it has not learned. So it is in no way surprising that it can recollect things it knew before. All learning is in fact a remembering. This is Sogyal Rinpoche. Spiritual truth is not something elaborate and esoteric. It is in fact profound common sense. When you realize the nature of consciousness, layers of confusion peel away. You don't actually become a Buddha. You simply cease slowly to be confused by the world of form. Aspiring to Buddhahood isn't about becoming a spiritual superman. It's about becoming at last a true human being. And this is the Dalai Lama. He is kind of the prophet, if you will, of the Tibetan school of Buddhism. We seek fulfillment in different ways. But just because someone isn't traveling on your road doesn't mean they're lost. And another from him. He says a positive attitude doesn't mean you're blind to life's problems. It means you're actively and enthusiastically pursuing solutions. If you enjoyed this episode, please find us on Facebook or feel free to reach out to us at mormonprogram at gmail.com. That's M-O-R-E-M-O-N program at gmail.com. 